Hello, Bridgetown podcast watchers and listeners. I'm Tyler Staten, the lead pastor of Bridgetown Church. And I would love to invite you to consider giving to our Christmas giving campaign this Advent season. It will extend all the way through year end, and we are raising funds toward three particular initiatives, Justice Allies, Justice Actions, and Bridgetown Kids. Every cent given will go to those three initiatives. You can find out much more and give at bridgetown.church give. Luke 3, 7 through 14. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axes already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then, the crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, what, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So these two young fish are uh, swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish who's swimming in the other direction, and he greets them. Morning, boys. How's the water? And the two young fish don't say anything right away. They continue to swim along, and then one of the young fish looks at the other young fish and says, what is water? Now, those are the words of the literary great David Foster Wallace, and As far as we know historically, there's never been a culture or an age that did not produce fables. A fable is a simple story that tells us something that is true but hard to see. Things aren't quite as they seem on the surface. That frog is actually a prince, and that lovely stepmother is really a witch, and that wardrobe, it's a tunnel into another world. There's never been a society in recorded history that didn't tell stories like those. And the fish story is a fable exposing a truth that is hidden in plain sight. Here is that truth. The most obvious and important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and talk about. Calling out in the wilderness. That is the title that we've hung on this Advent season as a church. It's a phrase that we've taken from the mouth of the prophet Isaiah that was then embodied in Jesus' older cousin named John, who was sent to prepare a way for him. He was called John the Baptizer then, mostly known as John the Baptist these days. And John's mission was to shine a light on the incarnate God, on the Jewish Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Creator, disguised in the common flesh of his own creation. And this is what great artists do for the rest of us. They teach us to see. A great painter working with a canvas is is painting something common to the ordinary eye, but they're teaching us with each new work, look at something, 
something that you're used to seeing with just any cursory glance, but look slower and more deeply so that this ordinary thing can speak to the deepest part of you. Now, John the Baptist, like Van Gogh or Monet, is working with a canvas to say, see what's there, see what's hidden in plain sight. Adjust your vision so that you can see beyond just what you've been trained to perceive to see the deeper truth that is hidden in the ordinary. And it's John's words that we just read as our teaching text from Luke chapter three. Brood of vipers, the ax is at the root. Merry Christmas. Now, John is definitely speaking critically here, but his words, they're not quite as harsh as we might read them today, a couple centuries and a few translations later. John is speaking within the prophetic tradition of the Old Testament, talking to a Hebrew crowd that is very used to that very prophetic tradition. And he's talking to people who have come to him in repentance, to people who are receptive to his message. And that's why you'll see that they don't respond defensively, but inquisitively. What should we do then, the crowd asked. Now that phrase, what should we do then? It's a phrase that's only found three places in the Bible and all of them are in Luke's writing. It's found in this passage, then in Acts chapter two on the day of Pentecost and in Acts 16 when Paul and Silas prayed their jail cells open. Every time it comes from the mouth of someone who's perceiving God in a new way and asking how to walk out repentance in their day-to-day -day life after this extraordinary encounter. So John is a messenger who's sent to help people recognize God when he lands among them disguised as a scandalous peasant refugee child named Jesus. And to that question, he offers these instructions. To the plentiful, simplicity. To the tax collectors, generosity. And to the soldiers, justice. A practical, countercultural swimming against the current practice for producing fruit in keeping with repentance for various people in various social positions and circumstances. And because we have just finished a deep dive on justice, we're gonna focus on the latter two this Advent season, simplicity and generosity, two key ingredients that open our eyes to recognize the God who landed in disguise and open our ears to hear the spirit whose native language is a whisper and open our hearts to receive the Father who has come to seek and save the lost. Frederick Buechner argues that before the Bible says anything else, it seems to be saying, pay attention. And that that's what the Bible keeps on saying as it builds and builds toward the person of Jesus. Most profoundly then, John the Baptist shows up saying, pay attention. Pay attention because it's all happening right now. After me comes one who won't baptize you with water but will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Uh, after me comes one who, who was actually before me and before you and before all of us and before all of this. He is the creator who's come into the creation, the one whose sandal straps I'm not even worthy to lay a finger on. Pay attention or you'll miss him. You'll miss this God hidden in plain sight. And the few that did perceive him, they were just those who happened to be paying attention. It was a few rural shepherds working an ordinary shift in the field one night, a, an elderly man and woman who happened to be there at the temple eight days after his birth, and a few magi who perceived a message written in the stars that sent them on a journey. Uh, there weren't extra spiritual people or well-studied people, or they, they weren't the holiest sort of people, they were just those who were paying attention. Pay attention. That's what John's saying. 
He's just an older fish swimming along, looking at any younger fish passing the other way in the stream, saying, morning, boys. How's the water? What should we do then, the crowd asks. That's their way of saying, what is water? What is the obvious thing that we might not be seeing? So to those who don't want to miss the Savior, who ask how to prepare their weary eyes to recognize him, John then says this, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Now this is a complex passage because when we read the English word shirts, it's the Greek chaton in the original text. Can you say that? And this is a complex Greek word that literally translates shirts. Now, similarly, when we read the English food, it's the Greek brahma, which is technically translated, if you want to get really scholarly about it, as food. Now, I find this fascinating, don't you? That for people awaiting Advent, for, for people awaiting the arrival of God, people eager to recognize God, John starts talking to them about their closets and refrigerators. It's strikingly practical and straightforward. In a word, he's talking about simplicity. That's what readies our eyes to see him, simplicity. So that'll be our theme for today. What is water? The most obvious and important realities are often the most difficult to see and the hardest to talk about. And that will take us from uh, Luke chapter 3 up to Luke chapter 18. I'm going to begin in verse 18. It'll be on the screen. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, don't misunderstand the question. He's not saying, how do I make sure I end up in heaven after I die? That's a modern invention of the question that has a whole lot more to do with Plato than it has to do with Jesus. He's asking, how do I experience the life that is truly life? Because whenever we read the term eternal life on the pages of scripture, it has to do with both the quantity and quality of life. So it is a kind of life that never stops, but more profoundly, it's the kind of life you actually want to go on living forever because it's the fullest and most abundant kind of living. God is not so much trying to get people into heaven as he's trying to get heaven into people until heaven covers every square inch of his creation. In first century Palestine, to be young and wealthy was thought to be spiritually blessed by God. And so this is a young and wealthy man going to a Jewish rabbi, because Jesus is a rabbi, only he's an edgy, renegade sort of rabbi that's on the fringes of the whole thing. So he goes to this edgy, renegade kind of rabbi and says, well, what's your reading of the Torah? Because if I'm living the blessed life, it feels underwhelming. So what is the pathway to the life that I thought I was already supposed to be receiving? And Jesus starts answering him literally by quoting the law. Well, the pathway is pretty clear. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. Now, most of us miss what Jesus is saying that would have been so obvious to the Hebrew hearer. Because Jesus says, you know the commandments. And then he starts naming the commandments, meaning the 10 commandments, the most famous commandments, only he only gets to six of them. So why does he only name six? Well, Jesus' message to the rich young ruler is actually hidden not in what he said, but in what he didn't say. It's what he left out that speaks the loudest. He named six, so which four are absent? You shall have no other gods, you shall not make idols, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord, 
and remember the Sabbath. Now commonly, the Ten Commandments are divided into two groups. There's uh, first a group that's all about the heart's devotion to God, and then there's a group all about uh, our way that we work out that devotion to God through the love of neighbor. It's, it's our outward behavior. Uh, part one's about love for God, part two is about love for neighbor. Jesus lists everything in part two and leaves out everything in part one. He, he jumps to all the commandments about love for neighbor, but he skips all the commandments about love for God. Jesus is showing him, you're keeping all the rules, but your heart is divided. And until your heart is given fully to me in undivided devotion, you're gonna keep on searching for the life that you can't seem to find. But what's dividing this man's heart? What is the other God that's competing for his affection? You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Now right here, Jesus is speaking in the present tense, not the future tense. He's talking about the eternal quality of life right now in this man's life in the real world. And to his disciples, Jesus would say things like, my kingdom is in your midst. And here's how you'll recognize it. It's marked by justice, peace, love, hope, generosity, forgiveness, shalom. And the environment where that kingdom breaks in is in the ordinary lives of ordinary people, radical enough to trade everything in order to receive it. In the words of the novelist Thomas Wolfe in his masterpiece, Bonfire of the Vanities, he says, to lose the earth you know for greater knowing, to lose the life you have for greater life. That's what Jesus is saying to this man, lose the life you have and there's even greater life. And so this man walked away. He rejected the invitation. Why? When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. The precise translation of this verse is because he had many possessions. And then Jesus said aloud, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. How hard it is for those who have many possessions to experience the life that is truly life. Now a statement that sharp and that direct, it should raise at least these three questions. Why, who, and what? Right, so first, why? Why is it hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Jesus was just as clear about that part. Now go with me to Mark chapter four to a parable Jesus taught. This is a fable, a simple story that he used to expose something that's hard to see and even harder for us to talk about. Now this story is known as the parable of the four soils. Jesus is describing that when he teaches, his teaching lands in an environment in someone's inner world. And there's different types of environments that, that dictate what kind of fruit comes from the teaching that he's speaking out. I wanna skip right to the third example. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. The worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desires for other things come in and they choke, they strangle, they suffocate the life that I'm trying to plant within you. In other words, having lots of stuff can distract you from what matters most. Would you agree? Like, would you agree of Jesus' assessment of the human condition that having lots of things or wanting lots of things or wanting just some things or wanting more things than what you have can sometimes, potentially, for a certain type of person, <laughs> affect 
your ability to direct your life at that which matters most and will truly satisfy. You see, Jesus makes a very direct connection between the eternal quality of life and the material possessions we collect along the way in this world. Between the kind of life that never expires and the many things we put our hands on that are expiring the second we touch them, we, my friends, are living in the third soil. And that on its own doesn't choke the word, but ignorance to the soil that his seed falls on does. So this one fish looks at these other fish in the water and says, morning boys, how's the water? What is water? Do you realize the water that you're swimming in? Matthew chapter six, again, this is Jesus speaking. No one, no one can serve two masters. Either you have the, hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot, cannot serve both God and money. Now, Jesus isn't saying the only way that you can follow me is by living in abject poverty, but Jesus is definitely saying, if it's my kingdom that you want, then casual, unchecked consumption is like playing with fire. The infamous theologian Christopher George Wallace said it this way, mo money, mo problems. <laughs> you probably know him as the notorious B.I.G. Now, do not misunderstand me here. Jesus is not anti-wealth. I mean, Jesus' chosen disciples included a violent zealot, a poor fisherman, and a well-off tax collector. He sat at Michelin star dinners with the priests and the rulers, and he sat uh, on the floor of huts eating crumbs with the peasants. Uh, the community bearing his name was made up of Jew, Greek, and Roman men and women, slave and free, rich and poor. Jesus is not anti-wealth. This is not about wealth. It's about the competition for your heart. And the accumulation of stuff is the accumulation of the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things. The question that the rich young ruler leaves us with is this one. What is competing with your undivided devotion to Jesus? What is blurring your vision? or blinding your eyes to see God in your midst? What is numbing your sensitivity to radical obedience to his whisper? What is the thing or things that you're trying to drag with you along the narrow way behind this rabbi? This is the principle we're left with. Freely give away anything and everything competing with your undivided devotion to Jesus. What should we do then? That's the question that the crowd asks. And to the plentiful, John says, clean out your closets and clothe the naked and the needy and clean out your pantry and share your bread with the hungry and the struggling. To the plentiful, John says, simplicity. And what John said, Jesus repeated later, Luke 14, those of you who do not give up everything cannot be my disciples. Jesus did not ask everyone to give up all of their possessions, but he was unapologetic in saying, freely give away anything and everything that is competing for me or with me for the divided real estate of your heart. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Why? 
Well, we know that now. But that just brings us to the second question, then who? Who are the rich? I'm just gonna give you the facts and let you decide. If your income's over $25,000 a year, you're wealthier than 90% of the world. If you make over 50,000, you're in the wealthiest 1%. 91% of the global population doesn't own a car. Nearly half of the world lacks basic sanitation. Two billion, that's one in every four people doesn't have clean drinking water. 828 million people go to bed hungry every night and 25,000 die daily from hunger. 10,000 of those are kids. Just under a billion people don't have electricity. Less than half of the world owns a computer. Less than 7% has a college education and one billion people live on less than $1 a day. I have a bike, a car, and multiple ride hailing apps on my phone. I have a home where everyone has a bed and there's AC for the summer and there's heat for the winter. I've got lights in every room, a TV with multiple streaming services and a set of speakers that plays music from my phone. Daily I put shampoo on my hair and soap on my body. I've got a tap pouring unlimited clean drinking water into my house. I've never woken up with a parched throat in the middle of the night without being able to quench my thirst, much less walked to a well to try to collect enough water for my family to make it through the day. I've got a fridge full of food. It's not just that I'm gonna eat today. I'm going to choose based on preference what I will eat today. I have an iPhone, an iPad, and a computer. I have a college education, and on Saturday morning, I paid $4 for a cup of drip coffee, which would get a good portion of the world to Wednesday. And on top of everything else, I have friends and family around me that if it really came down to it, would never let me spend a night on the street. Having read the scriptures, knowing the statistics, I have come to this one great conclusion. I am the rich young ruler. I am the plentiful one to whom John says, your overstuffed closet and your stocked pantry, share it. And then you'll see the Savior who's right in your midst right now. This is the water. This is the water. This is the water. Several years ago, I got to sit with Tim Keller as he was reflecting back on decades of ministry in New York City. And he said uh, that being a pastor for as long as he'd been a pastor meant that he had heard every confession under the sun. He was like, you know, you can dream up really any scenario you want and someone has probably shared that with me in a vulnerable moment of confession. But he said, you know what's interesting is there's one confession I've never heard in my entire life in pastoral ministry. Greed. Now he's in the heart of Manhattan. That's the global epicenter of finance and, and a place for upper class elites. It's one of the wealthiest places on the planet and never once has he heard greed. I struggle with an abundance of things and I still want more. This is the water. This is the water. This is the water water. So why can't we see this? How can we be swimming in this ocean completely unaware? Because consumerism is our default setting. 
It's because today in the modern West, we have, we have, or most of us at least, have accepted a very rare specific set of norms without ever thinking about it. Consumerism is our default setting, and that means it's become this constant, addicted, and assumed pursuit of more. And consumerism is such a powerful force because it's built on scarcity. Scarcity is the deep belief that no matter how much I have, it is never enough. And so consumption is largely driven by fear, the fear that what I have, or probably even deeper, who I am is not enough. And that fear then gets massaged by this lie, buy more and then you'll be happy. Take another vacation, get a new outfit, move into a better apartment, find the perfect pair of winter boots, get a car or a home outside the city for weekend escapes or a night out at that new restaurant or get a bottle of this for your cabinet. Are you feeling restless? Then consume. But consumerism is fast food. It masks our hunger for a few minutes, but it does not nourish our deeper desires. It does not fill us with life and vitality to go on living the full life in this world. All it does is pulls a rug over that hunger that we feel for just a moment. Consumerism is our default setting. And the Advent season, which John framed as a time for simplicity that might open our eyes to God, has been reframed by our culture for a time of rampant and unchecked consumerism, which blinds our eyes and blurs our vision to that very God. We have accommodated ourselves to the constant addicting and endless pursuit of more. This is the water. Just look at the facts. And the average size of the American home has increased by 40% over the last 50 years. The average American woman today has 103 items in her closet. In 1930, that was nine outfits. 4% of the world's children live in America, but, only, but they consume 34% of the world's toys. The average American family spends $1,800 on clothes annually while throwing away 70 pounds of clothes annually. Americans spend $4.5 trillion annually on non-essential goods, meaning stuff that we do not need. To quote an acquaintance from the eastern half of the world, it's way harder in the US than it is over here in India because we actually name our gods and put them on our temples. You have gods, but you do not need name them, and so it's harder to see them. This is water. This is water. This is water. Can I just show you a picture? Uh, this is an image of everything that Mahatma Gandhi owned at the time of his death. This is his material uh, inheritance to pass on and the sum total of his net worth, and the man who owned all of that said of the Christian church, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Is there any more obvious dissimilarity between Jesus and us than the habits around our consumption? Now look, don't misunderstand me here. This is not about poverty, it's about stewardship. Both poverty and wealth are only about the mere possession of goods. Stewardship is about the use of all that we possess. And money is not the root of all evil, the love of money. That is the root of all evil. Greed or the overattachment to what we have and what we want can take up residence in the heart of the rich and the poor alike. So, so this is not about poverty. Scripture does not teach that class is a determining factor in God's affection for people. What Scripture teaches is that God lifts up the poor and the disadvantaged and, and that God casts down the wealthy and the powerful only in one of two circumstances, when they become wealthy by oppressing the poor or when they fail to share their plenty with the needy. This is a call to stewardship. 
which is to relate to everything I have as God's resources in his creation entrusted to me temporarily to be used for his purposes. It is to share all that I have according to the way of Jesus and his kingdom. The question is, does stuff, the stuff I have and the stuff that I desire, does it compete with my devotion to God? And there's a second question that's like it. Do I have more than I need? And if the answer to that question is yes, then who can I share it with? And what's gotten in the way of me sharing it? See, if we're gonna follow Jesus in this environment of ours, we've gotta start taking Jesus seriously when it comes to our stuff. Because we are steeped in this unspoken mantra to consume without restraint, without careful consideration, and without deep reflection. This is our default setting. And a man a lot like us once said to Jesus, how do I get the life that's truly life? If it's my kingdom you want, he said, then casual unchecked consumption is like playing with fire. And Jesus' words are important. But the life that he lived resounds even louder than anything he ever said. His voluntary surrender of every rightful power, of every privilege, of every comfort spent on others, mostly on others who would treat such an offering flippantly and without any gratitude. And that didn't change a thing. He just kept spending himself on others. And if you want the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. And one of the most overlooked practices of Jesus' life is the countercultural way of simplicity. And that brings us to our final question, what? What should we do then? That's what the crowd asked John, a crowd which, a lot like this crowd, included many who had plenty. Take the extra shirt out of your closet and drape it over the shoulders of a shivering body. And take the extra bread out of your pantry and break it with the hungry. Now that requires two things. One, a willingness to simplify. And two, relationship with someone who's needy. And that, says John the Baptist, that will open your eyes to recognize God in your midst. The one whose sandal straps I'm not worthy to untie, the one whose kingdom never ends, the alpha, the omega, the savior of the world, the God who arrives so humbly you're bound to miss him unless you're readying your eyes to see simplicity. That's the practice John gave that would prepare the plentiful to recognize God in their midst. So I wanna define simplicity for you and then I wanna tell you where it came from. So first, uh, as a definition, Richard Foster offers the best and the simplest, oh, simplest, pun not intended. Simplicity is an inward reality that results in an outward lifestyle. So Jesus saw the rich young ruler and he had this overabundance of possessions. That's an outward lifestyle, but Jesus didn't comment on his outward lifestyle. He didn't critique any of his possessions. He just took aim directly at the root. Get rid of anything and everything that's competing with your devotion to me. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. See, when that's your inward reality, when that is your first pursuit, then the outward expression of that reality in the land of plenty is going to look like simplicity when it comes to your material possessions and a readiness to share everything you have like you never owned it in the first place. Luke chapter 12, but seek first his kingdom and all these things will be given to you as well. That's an inward reality. It's the only inward reality that leads to the life that is truly life. But in Luke's record of the Sermon on the Mount, we often don't follow what immediately comes after that big headline. This is the very next verse. Don't be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail where no thief comes and no moth destroys. 
Simplicity of material possessions and a readiness to share all that we have is the outward lifestyle that flows from this inward reality. Jan Johnson in her book, Abundant Simplicity, expounds on this idea. Simplicity is not a discipline itself, but a way of being. It is a letting go of things others consider normal. It is an inward reality of single-hearted focus upon God and God's kingdom, which results in an outward lifestyle of modesty, openness, and unpretentiousness, and which disciplines our hunger for status, glamour, and luxury. We practice simplicity when we intentionally arrange our life around God, what he's doing in us and in the world, and let the rest drop off. See, simplicity as a spiritual practice means intentionally rearranging our lives around what's common to Jesus, not what's common to our culture. It helps us to question the things that we have and the value that they are or not adding to our lives. And it frees us to love wildly and to give freely. And ultimately, it allows us to make treasures out of things that will never expire rather than things that are passing away. And simplicity is the secret way to abundance. It's the way to the life that is really life. It's the secret weapon that we've been given against anxiety and worry and busyness and exhaustion and burnout and financial stress and debt. Simplicity for the plentiful is the way to the fullest kind of living. And simplicity is not a new idea for the modern West, for a new version of Christians and and a particularly new type of water. It has a rich history as an essential spiritual practice that goes all the way back to Jesus. Just to kind of skip over the top of the history, it was first known uh, in church history as the practice of frugality, which is an English word that's derived from the Latin frux, from which we get the word fruit. It's a way of saying the frugal life is the fruitful life. Back to Luke 3, our grounding passage, John says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, repentance was John's message. It was what he offered and what he preached. Uh, and, And what he's saying here is that simplicity is a way of producing fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance just means to change your mind and go the other way. So it means I was going this way, pursuing the life that is fully life, but I've had a change of mind about what gives me that kind of life. So now I'm just going the other way. Simplicity is evidence that I'm keeping in step with this new way of the fullest kind of living. Now, from Jesus, we trace the early church history to the fourth century uh, Turkish father, John Chrysostom, who said this, it is foolishness and a public madness to fill the cupboards with clothing and allow men and women who are created in God's image and our likeness to stand naked and trembling with the cold so that they can barely hold themselves upright. You hold drinking parties until late at night and sleep in a warm, soft bed. And do you not think of how you must give an account of your misuse of the gifts of God? That's the fourth century church. Likewise, in the same century, Melania the Younger, uh, a Roman saint said, let us quickly lay aside our goods that we may gain Christ. And her biographer said of Melania and her husband, they clearly recognized that it was impossible for them to offer pure worship to God unless they made themselves enemies of the confusions of the secular life. That's the teaching of the early church. One historian makes the case that St. Francis founded the Franciscan order during an era in history when culture was shifting from a trade economy to a money or currency economy. Meaning for the first time in human history, it went from I'll trade you my bull for your whatever to I can actually accumulate wealth and begin to build up and save up for things. Now, economically, there's no issue with that at all. 
But what Francis saw was that greed was beginning to leak into and become common to the church. And so the Franciscan order was the first monastic order in human history to include vows to simplicity as a part of their order. The Dominicans were founded by St. Dominic in the same century, holding the same vows in their order. You see, it seems that when materialism and overabundance were threatening the church, whole communities of Christ followers practiced an outward lifestyle that taught them to swim against the current. Are materialism and overabundance a threat to today's church? To this church? And are we swimming against the current? Or are we just passively floating along with it? You'll find the radical way of simplicity going on in, in the writings of John Calvin. You'll see it in the lives of missionaries like C.T. Studd and Hudson Taylor. Most recently, Dallas Willard said, possession and the direction of, force, of the forces of wealth are as legitimate an expression of the redemptive rule of God in human life as is Bible teaching or a prayer meeting. You see, family, this is what I'm trying to show you is that the bride of Christ in our time has a mistress named materialism. The church in the West began sleeping with the American dream and we are their offspring, bearing a striking resemblance to both. We are experts at avoiding the way of Jesus when it gets confrontational to our lifestyle around consumerism. We evade the full call of Jesus and in the process we evade the life that is truly life. But what I'm wondering is if there might be a few among us like Francis or Dominic a few who see the current that's carrying us along passively in our time and say, I'm going to swim against it and invite anyone who wants to come with me to come with me. A few who could protect the potency of the way of Jesus, the life that is truly life during a time when we're commonly settling for so much less. Now, if you're feeling a bit overwhelmed or even offended, then that's totally okay. Because we all have an emotional attachment to wealth and possessions and our things. And so the second I start talking about a topic like this, when I'm talking about something that you have a personal emotional, emotional relationship with, and that's, that's a different emotional relationship for everyone in the room. And then of course, it's really complicated for a pastor to talk about money and possessions for a whole bunch of tragically legitimate reasons. And so I, I want you to know this, that there's an important detail in Mark's record of this rich young ruler story that's left out by Luke that we can't miss, and it's this. Jesus looked at him and loved him, it says in Mark 10, 21. You see, this wasn't a rebuke. Jesus wasn't rebuking the rich young ruler. It was an invitation. He was inviting him. Jesus was saying to him, come, follow me, be my disciple, receive my life. And the rich young ruler counted the, counted the cost and decided it's not worth it. Now anyone who's ever counted the cost of discipleship to Jesus and found it high is someone who's accurately counted the cost. Because it's your whole life, it's everything you're holding on to laid down for this one treasure hidden in this one field that's worth it. But anyone who's ever counted that cost and found it too high is one who hasn't accurately counted the reward. the greater living that is known on the other side of this great, risky letting go. And it's later, just a few verses later, in fact, that Jesus comes across another rich, successful young man with an abundance of possessions in Luke's gospel. His name is Zacchaeus. 
another rich young ruler that Jesus saw and loved, only Zacchaeus was able to receive that love. He was able to trust this narrow way and this radical cost. He unprompted and uncoerced in response to Jesus' gaze of love said, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. You see, it seems that Luke put these two stories so near one another in his gospel to juxtapose one against the other. One man desperately trying to find a way to fit Jesus into an already filled life and another man just emptying his hands and falling on his knees at Jesus' feet. And Jesus loved them both. This isn't a rebuke. It's an invitation to recognize Jesus and welcome him in. A few years ago, uh, I was confronted with this reality that I am trying to get the life of Jesus by the lifestyle of consumerism. And I discovered that my habits around consumption, they were much more shaped by common American culture than they were by Jesus of Nazareth. And I just felt this gentle invitation from the Spirit that if you want my life, you've gotta try taking on my lifestyle. Simplicity, just try it and see if it really is the life that is truly life. And so with a whole lot of help from people further down the road on this than me, mostly my friend Darren, who is the inspiration behind almost everything that I'm teaching today, one of the things that that meant for me is that for 18 months, I just made no purchases outside of food and drink. Like no consumption of clothing or media or anything else. And I don't wanna make that seem like anything more than it was because I wasn't slumming it by any global standard. I, I was doing just fine, but I did just take this one simple like half baby step. And I noticed a couple of things over the course of those 18 months. And the first one was this, that at the end of 18 months, I still had an overabundance of possessions. I still had way more than I could ever need. I was still the rich young ruler. After an 18 month fast from living like the rich young ruler. And the second thing I noticed was this, is that I wanted less that somewhere along the way, this desire for consumption had begun to lessen in me. I didn't entertain the opportunity to upgrade to a new device or to add this new item of clothing to my wardrobe or something, and I, I stopped wanting to, or, or at least I wanted to less. It's like what John Chrysostom said. The rich man is not the one who's collected many possessions, but the one who needs few possessions. And the poor man is not the one who has no possessions, but the one who has many possessions desires. So what started for me as an 18-month experiment then became a set of practices. I put limits on my consumption that I lived by then and I've kept on living by them for years. Like, for instance, I, I only buy clothing one time a year at a set time. And the reason for that is not because I'm noble, it's because I'm weak. It's because the Lord is my shepherd and I am with want. <laughs> I am with so much want. but I'm freer when I'm without want. And I'm more alive when I'm without want. And I want to live without want. And for someone who's got so much want in them like I do, limiting even the mental entertainment of adding possessions has been helpful at aiming my life in the direction of my deeper desires. I am still, at, at this moment, the rich young ruler 
but I think I might be like beginning to stumble into this way of simplicity that I see profoundly and maturely in the lives of the ancients. So how about you? What is competing with Jesus for your heart and your formation? Is it an overabundance of stuff and the desire for more stuff? And if it is, what if you just committed to just maybe for the month of December, do your grocery shopping or, or you're going to the gym or you're banking or some regular practice of your life in a part of town where the common socioeconomic bracket is lower than yours? What if you willingly entered into the limitations that other people can't choose their way out of and you simply prayed, God, help me to grow in empathy for my city? That's the way of simplicity. Or, or, or maybe it's your home, and if it's your home, what if you gave up looking for a new apartment or, or trying to upgrade your living situation in some way or another, and you just decided that contentment with where you live and how you live is actually more formative to that which you deeply desire than upgrading? That's the way of simplicity. Or maybe it's your spending habits, and so what if you decided, I'm gonna to begin to place a limit on my uh, purchasing of coffee or alcohol or restaurants or whatever it is for you, and, and, and you used what you had left over to say, yeah, I'd love to buy you a bite to eat, or, or to begin making a regular donation to an organization that you trust. That's the way of simplicity. Or maybe it's your appearance, and so what if you give up shopping for a set period of time, or you give up one cosmetic product that you think of as a necessity, or, or you limited your closet to a certain number of items, and you gave everything else away to a donation center so that the item that you save for once or twice a year could actually become daily warmth or covering for someone who needs it. All of that is the way of simplicity. And I'm rattling off these random ideas because simplicity is not a one-size-fits-all practice. It's a common call that then takes on unique expression in the life of every last individual. But simplicity is something that applies to homeowners and renters, to those who have trust funds and those who are drowning in debt, to the established and those living paycheck to paycheck. Because simplicity is not about what we do with our leftovers. It's about our whole lifestyle. It's about what we do with our money and our stuff and our attention. Simplicity opens our eyes to behold the most important sight we will ever learn to recognize, and that's God in our midst. So Bridgetown Church is, is organized not just around a stage on Sundays, but even more profoundly around tables midweek scattered into every last sector of our city. And it's there that we get this stuff practiced. And we call those places Bridgetown communities. And if you're not in a Bridgetown community, there's gonna be an invitation in in January. But if you are, and the majority of you are, then our practice for this week is all about the countercultural upstream swim called simplicity. It's about choosing simplicity according to the Spirit's invitation uh, for every last individual individually and it's about for every last individual and it's about choosing simplicity during a time of year when the cultural script is speaking rampant consumerism into every last individual. Our community guides are up on the website right now to be practiced around the table this week. But I want to close here. That if we are to behold the wonder of the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, if our jaws again this year are to hit the ground and our eyes wet with tears as our voices cry out at the miracle of Emmanuel, the God with us, if we're to get past sentiment to truly recognize this God again and afresh, then first we will fall to our knees in repentance. 
Because that is how John made the path straight and the way level and the crooked direct. He preached repentance and then said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And I've noticed this, that Isaiah, the prophet whose words this entire teaching series is based on, who Jesus fulfilled, when he first beheld God in Isaiah 6 and, and saw who he really was, he said, woe to me for I am unclean and I live among a people who are unclean. And when Peter, this disciple that Jesus kept coming after, finally realized who he was really dealing with in Jesus, he fell at his knees and said, away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. I've noticed that when we recognize God or when people recognize God on the pages of scripture, they don't immediately erupt in hope, peace, joy, and love. All that's coming. Praise is gonna flow out of every last life, but they start with confession. They fall to their knees before this God in confession. And so what readies a community of people who aren't defensive or offended, but who are inquisitive and eager to receive, to receive him? It's confession. It's falling to his knees and emptying our hands and saying, I didn't, I didn't realize who I was dealing with in Jesus. But I do again now. <laughs>